Hello, you're listening to Linguistically Aware, a spoken word program about the ways we use, understand, and think about language. I'm Dusan Nikolic, and today I'm sitting down with Dr. Denis Toroshenko to talk about the ways we use, pronouns, and forms of gender stereotypes. Dennis's research is quite diverse. It revolves around understanding the interface of syntax and semantics, sentence structure and meaning, that is, how various groups of speakers form sentences they form, why they tend to say most amazing and unexpected things, whether the form or the meaning drive their choices, and what lies underneath their choices to judge one form acceptable or relatively acceptable and another form unacceptable or relatively unacceptable. This is the second installment of a podcast with Dennis, in which he talks about the incredible use of pronouns in speech and what has been found in relation to pronouns used to form gender stereotypes. Before you tune into our conversation, it is essential to acknowledge that this is CJSW 90.9 FM broadcasting on the traditional territories of all the people who make their homes in the Treaty 7 of Southern Alberta. Um, and finally, we, we come to the, uh, the most, I, I think the most recent study, right? Correct me if I'm wrong, on the gender stereotyping yeah, in yeah. Uh, research experiments. Can you tell us something more about that? I believe it's very interesting and a lot is hidden there, right? Uh, yeah. So uh, the starting point for this research was actually a reaction to a paper that uh, had been circulating uh, for a year or two, but I think it was like officially uh, put out in 2020, um, where a group of researchers did a systematic analysis of 20 years worth of publication in three of the most popular uh, journals for syntax uh, within the field. And what they were looking for were just uh, ignore the analysis, ignore whatever theory is being looked at. They were just doing a systematic analysis of all the example sentences that people are using in their papers. And what they found was that uh, where you might expect there would be some sort of gender parity. There obviously is not. And um, you find, let me pull up the, I wrote the numbers down somewhere. Um, yeah. So these so, are from the first three journals in syntax or no, right? Uh, so these are from uh, three journals. So language, I mean, which is the journal oh, okay. of uh, the Linguistic Society of America, and then uh, Linguistic Inquiry, which is one of the top journals in syntax, and also uh, Natural Language and Linguistic Theory, which is another syntax journal. And so they collected thousands of these example sentences and found that when you have a reference to humans, you only have 22% uh, of them are explicitly referring to uh, female uh, nouns, so like just woman, girl, etc., things like that. 30% um, of them are ambiguous, so things like kid, child, person. 
but then 48% of them are male. Um, and then once you uh, account for, you know, who is the actor in a sentence versus who is the person who is being acted upon, the asymmetry gets even worse. And you just realize that the linguistic literature is just covered with these examples where you have, it's always a male actor and it's a female character in the example sentence who's being acted upon. And this gets even worse when you start to look at uh, what are the verbs that are being used. Um, there's uh, a particular use of uh, linguistic example sentences that tend to be quite violent. Like there's, there's always these verbs about killing and hitting and so on and so forth. And the actors in those, males are overrepresented. Um, and then also you get these example sentences that involve uh, you know, intimate relations. Some of them get borderline salacious. Um, and there you often find it's the female name in the sentence that is being somehow objectified. So there's a long history of gender stereotype that exists in linguistic publishing but those, so that paper had only looked at those three particular journals, which tend not to include experimental lab work so much. And once you start looking at the history of experimental lab work, you find the same thing where now you're reading a paper about, oh, we brought a couple of dozen students into the lab and we made them read all of these sentences. And the experiment has absolutely nothing to do with gender stereotypes. The experiment is just something completely unrelated to do with, you know, how did you parse the sentence? But meanwhile, the sentences that the participants have to uh, react to, again, might contain gender stereotypes or might contain um, examples of violence, or even worse, um, I've stumbled across uh, one where this was a study that was conducted in the 1980s in the United States, and one of the stimulus items just literally describes a, a slave owner transaction on a plantation. And so now you're introducing these this content into the experimental item that might create just this complete other reaction depending on the participant that could A, be skewing your data and B, raises some ethical questions as to how are your participants feeling in the study. Um, and also you're just perpetuating stereotypes of exclusion that would make you know a young student uh african-american would see oh i'm looking at a field where they think it's okay to just like randomly drop mentions of slavery i don't want to be part of this field um so there, there are all sorts of things that uh, need to be considered not just looking at publishing example sentences but also looking at how it works in the lab so one of the things that we wanted to do was take a model of one of these studies that is just looking at um, a grammatical question. 
So again, this is just uh, going back to the example that I started from that, um, uh, what did you see the person who was wearing? There are all these unconscious issues on how to form questions in English. And another one would be um, something along the lines of, uh, what did the person forget when they bought? And you kind of know, like, okay, well, what I'm trying to get at is like, oh, well, the person forgot when they bought that hat. But you can't ask the question that way. There's just this uh, phenomenon that has been observed in English where if the what is meant to be interpreted as a verb that is interpreted as the object of a verb that is after the when or the where, you can't move the what across the when or the where and put it out of the beginning of the sentence to ask a question about it. And again, I mean, in linguistics, we have a name for this. It's an island phenomenon, but your average speaker of English has no idea what to name that. They'll just hear the sentence and think, ah, that's not possible for me. And so what we did is we constructed a whole set of uh, badly formed questions where it's just as soon as you hit that, you know, wonder where or forget when kind of structure right in the middle, uh, we put uh, the subject of the sentence is a profession noun that is either stereotyped towards being masculine or feminine. So uh, an e example of something that is stereotyped as masculine would be a general and something that is uh, stereotyped towards feminine. Uh, the classic example is nurse. Um, so we have this subject that is already carrying a known stereotype. And we associate with that the which item that comes before. And we just make that some sort of like article of clothing or accessory that also has some sort of gender stereotype associated with it. So for the general an item that matches the stereotype would be something like which necktie and something that doesn't match the stereotype would be uh, which lipstick. And so we have something, the item that is just part of this question matches or mismatches the stereotype. And then after you hit that wonder where or forget when part of the sentence, um, you then encounter a pronoun that is either he or she and we control the various forms that again, either matches or mismatches the stereotype from that profession noun. So you can have one form of this question that completely upholds the stereotype all the way through something like, uh, which necktie did the general forget where he put after the parade? And then you can subvert that right out at the beginning with something like which lipstick did the general forget where he put after the parade? Um, you could subvert it after you hit the point where you should realize the sentence is ungrammatical. So which necktie did the general forget uh, where she put after the parade? Or you can have the form that subverts it both before and after. Which lipstick did the general forget where she put after the parade? So we've got all these four different forms of these questions, and we built uh, eight of them around a stereotypically masculine profession, and we built eight of them around a stereotypically feminine profession. And I could 
talk more about how we decided those. And also as control items, we have eight professions that uh, don't have any gender stereotype associated with them. Uh, the example here is cyclist. And what we put in the opening which phrase is just some item that either fits or doesn't fit with the activity. So it could be something like which helmet did the cyclist forget when he bought before the race? Or the one that doesn't match would be like which flippers did the cyclist um, forget when he bought before the race? So we kind of use that as a baseline of deciding, well, what is the reaction that people have when they are encountering one of these questions and there's something just semantically odd, like a cyclist with flippers is odd. And what we found as that baseline is that these are all badly formed questions of English on that seven point scale people were rating somewhere between three and four, which is starting to lean towards the unacceptable end. But going from cyclist with helmet to cyclist with flippers um, knocks the rating down significantly about another half point on the scale. So you get that effect as your baseline. But what we found is that when we compare that to the ones that had uh, gender stereotype content, and this was the first surprising result, was that no matter whether we were upholding a gender stereotype all the way through or subverting it once or twice, the ratings of those items were not significantly different from each other. They were all equally knocked down by that about half point to align with the cyclist with flippers. So just having a gender stereotype in the sentence, whether you uphold it or not, seemed to significantly knock the rating down. So that was the first thing that really surprised us. Um, Did you notice then, any difference between male and female, like um, in he and she? So which, um, uh, which, for example, I don't know, which uh, helmet or, yeah, the, did the general forget when she, um, I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like so the, no, so the, whether it was um, subverting the stereotype at the point of, you know, the item being associated with the profession or whether it was subverting the stereotype at the point of the pronoun matching back to the profession no difference um it all was just like if you run the statistical analysis it is all very boring there is nothing significant they're all just equally the same the only thing that started to approach significance but never got there um was that the items that had a masculine stereotype profession were trending a little bit lower in the ratings than the ones with a feminine stereotype, but it wasn't significant um, to the point where we even ran another, uh, I think, 16 participants through it just to add more participants to see if that trend would really start to pan out. 
and it just still remained insignificant. So there was nothing there. Um, but there was that trend. So just having the stereotype in the sentence seems to knock the ratings down, not to a point where it's going to like revolutionize theory, but to a point where your reader might have just that slightly more extreme reaction to thinking, oh yeah, that's, that's really unacceptable. Um, which as a rhetorical device that might explain why the, the literature is littered with these kinds of examples because it's just triggering a stronger reaction. Um, but we also looked at the reaction times on just how long it took people to press that one through seven scale, how long it took them to actually press the button. And what we found there was again, completely unexpected. Um, the ones that were actually floating at the middle were the ones where the stereotype is just completely upheld. We had expected that those would be the ones that people go through the fastest, but actually those were the ones that were at the middle. Um, where you have only one point of subverting the stereotype, so when you've got you know, which lipstick general, but then he, or you've got uh, which necktie then general, but then she, those are the ones that significantly slow people down. But what was completely unexpected was that when it's which lipstick general she, those ones are the significantly fastest of all for people to press the button. And again, they're, what the average response is, is not changing. It's always floating around something like 3.2 um, on that seven point scale. But they're fastest at hitting that response on the one that doubly subverts the stereotype which was something that we don't understand yet. But that just pushes us even more to thinking, we really need to look at this in the kinds of experimental models where you're actually tracking what people are doing word by word by word and measuring these millisecond differences to find out if just the content of the sentences and how you're dealing with stereotypes is impacting how people are processing that grammatical oddity of what happens when you hit the wonder where. So are you so distracted by what's going on with the gender stereotype that you might be processing that grammatical structural thing somehow differently? Um, because then that can open the door to questions of, well, if we know that manipulating gender stereotypes is something that is going to impact the overall grammatical processing of sentences, that can start to turn into, again, things that you might point out uh, when just telling people how to be effective communicators is, you know, if, if you're going to be talking about a female general, maybe you should just introduce that in a first sentence and get that out of the way before you start introducing a more complex sentence about something completely unrelated. Um, yeah, that, that's what I thought when you mentioned uh, the fastest reaction times. Yeah, as you said, immediately as soon as they see lipstick in general, they probably hit 
the, yep. the, some button, right? Yep. And that's why the context matters, I guess. Yep. And yeah, uh, it needs to be introduced properly. Yeah. Right. And, and especially, as I said, because there are decades worth of examples of these kind of fine timing lab studies that you know, introduce gender stereotypes and other content that people might find offensive. And it's not controlled for in any way, shape or form. Um, so this could be something that is actually impacting data that needs to be addressed. And that's where I want to go with this research. Yeah. No, sounds sounds fun. Um, basically, everything everything you mentioned so far. Um, so I'm going to ask you, sort of again, uh, okay. and not actually again. I want to ask you about the languages that you said you were uh, uh, conducting research on. You mentioned a couple like Korean, yep. Persian, Japanese, even um, I believe. What's is is there any other? I think you mentioned a couple. Do you speak these languages? And um, which is not really really important, but uh, why did you choose these languages? Okay, so running down the history of languages that I speak. Um, so I uh, am born into a monolingual English speaking family. So that's the language that I speak. 99% of the time, I would say. Um, I spent four years in French immersion, so I have some rusty ability to get my way through a conversation in French. Um, I've never actually researched French, though. And um, then later on through high school and then in university, I had taken a couple of years of high school Japanese. I've got one semester of university German. Um, and I've got a couple of uh, semesters of like, continuing ed uh, Korean. So the reason those things went back and forth is uh, partially just as my linguistic work evolved, it became easier to do the work if I knew the language. Um, so my MA thesis had been on Japanese. And the reason that was chosen was partially just a matter of um, sort of serendipity at the time. So uh, Japanese and Korean, while they, so they, they share the same writing system, more or less, that had been inherited from China. But then both Japan and Korea went in different directions in terms of how they actually want to establish a sound-based writing system. Um, the languages are, as far as we know, not related to each other, but structurally they're very similar. So it's usually a fairly safe bet that in terms like so in terms of the sound system and in terms of the 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 lexicon the actual words you're probably not going to find much relationship between japan and korea but at the level of sentence structure yes there's lots of things that just easily move from hypothesis testing in one language and then moving to the other so my uh graduate school supervisor 
was a Korean speaker who had done lots of work on Korean. Um, I happened to show up uh, with already some background in Japanese. And there happened to be another student who was in the program at the same time who was also a Japanese speaker. And so it just seemed to be the perfect opportunity to say, well, okay, we have this observation on how negation works in Korean. Let's test it in Japanese. And that just turned into how I did the work that I did on Japanese. And then later on uh, in my PhD, again, working with the same supervisor, uh, again, we just uh, concentrated on Korean, which was just taking you know, known patterns of how do different verbs influence the interpretation of pronouns in English, and then seeing if those same patterns occur in Korean, where the difference is that, so for something like um, the, the John told Bill that he is sick kind of example, um, in English, you get the difference of told to versus heard from before you hit the pronoun. In Korean, you don't get that verb until the very end of the sentence. And so while in English, the content of that verb colors your pronoun as soon as you hear it, uh, in Korean, what we observed is that at the point of initially hearing the pronoun, people are just relying on the structure of the sentence to try to guess who it refers to. But then once you hear that verb at the end, people change their mind. And um, yeah. yeah, so that is what led me to uh, doing research on Korean. And also as part of doing that research, just in terms of like interacting with people in the lab and also being able to read and understand the literature, it just became very practical for me to take a couple of Korean courses. Um, to, to sit and just do the research, I didn't need to speak the language, but to be able to interact with participants in the lab, it was very helpful to yeah. just be able to greet and have a little minimal conversation. Yeah. Um, and I guess at that point, you did not have an idea how impactful Korean might be today. In no, Korea, no, Korean culture. Not. <laughs> um, no, uh, definitely at that time, uh, watching Squid Game was not on my mind. Um, but, and then also through taking a field methods class, I uh, studied uh, Shona, which is a language from Zimbabwe. Um, I have one or two publications that came out of that work. Um, I happened to be lucky um, at the time that I was doing my postdoc. Um, so, that, so I did that uh, fieldwork uh, course uh, while I was an exchange student at UBC. Um, so that was my first exposure to the Shona language. But I happened to be very lucky that when I moved on to doing my postdoc in the States, uh, I was able to recruit a new set of uh, speakers of Shona who had uh, come from Zimbabwe to the States to do their education. And they were willing to work with me and help me to pursue the analysis of Shona that I was working on. And then another uh, student in that program kind of inherited those consultants and did a whole thesis on Shona uh, working with the people that I had recruited. Um, 
And then after coming to Calgary, um, the first uh, grad students that I had, uh, one of them had already been working on Blackfoot. So uh, they did a small project on Blackfoot. Uh, the other grad student that I had initially was uh, coming from Iran and uh, was working on, wanted to do a project on Persian, which aligned very nicely with my research background, just because uh, Persian turns out to be structurally very similar to Japanese and Korean. Again, completely unrelated, but the structures of the language and the stuff that you observe going on are quite similar. So it's just, again, this process of like, well, okay, now we've observed certain phenomena that occurred in Japanese and Korean. Let's see if it works in Persian. Um, Persian is a little bit different and some of the patterns work, some of the patterns don't. And that has just uh, started a process of having uh, several uh, students uh, from Iran at this point uh, who have all brought very interesting research questions on uh, Persian syntax and semantics that, you know, just have been able to have a nice pairing of, you know, their knowledge of the language uh, matching up with my existing knowledge of structurally similar language, uh, structurally similar languages that gives us just sort of intuitions of where to poke and prod and look for differences. Um, so that has been where that influence came in. And then again, more recently, uh, I've just had uh, one master's student uh, graduate earlier in 2021, uh, who had been working on Turkish, which again, is part of that same sort of typological group of you know, here are these languages where it's always here's your subject, then here's your object, and then you get the verb at the end. Um, so that just kind of fits in the wheelhouse of types of languages that I'm used to studying. And it's easy for me to come up with, hey, we should look at this. Thank you so much for talking with me. This oh, was lovely. Thank you for inviting me. That was lovely and brilliant Denis Soroshenko, who shared with us his vast linguistic knowledge and pronouns, the topic nowadays more important than you would think. You can check out some of the amazing work Denis does on our website, calgarylinguistics.ca. For the upcoming monthly episodes of Linguistically Aware on CGSW 90.9 FM, visit the cgsw.com program Linguistically Aware. My name is Dusan Nikolic, and I'm the host of this wonderful podcast. Have a great day and stay with CGSW. You know you're in the right place.